welcome to selfdiscoveryradio.com, where we bring you insightful, liberating, intuitive people from around the globe. They share their life's journeys and experience wisdom to guide you on your own discovery of self. Each week from Tuesday to Monday, we will bring you new shows on our many genres, and with over 1,400 shows, we have the answers for you. Enjoy your listening on selfdiscoveryradio.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Choose Positive Living with me, your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest today, Susan Sapiro, sorry, going tongue-tied there, all the way from New York. And we're going to hear uh, life behind her in New York as New York never sleeps. Writing, what does it do for us? How does it set us free? How does it answer the questions that we didn't even know we were asking? How do you become a writer? What? Uh, how do you find a topic to write? What inspires you? We're going to be learning all of this from Susan today because she is an expert in this field. We have 10 books under her belt, at least. Uh, she writes for the New York Times, the New York Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the LA Times, Newsweek, Elle, Esquire, and Oprah Magazine, amongst others. So I think she knows a little bit about writing. And uh, when I first talked to her, I talked about the speech shrinking because I absolutely loved uh, the whole idea of it. And I'm going to start there about how do you actually kind of write about something, how it comes about, and taking this journey about the speed shrinking and how it became a book is absolutely delightful. So I'm going to start the story there, and then we're just going to go into exactly what it takes to write, uh, how to express yourself, how to find those topics, uh, what does it, what do you need to become a writer, and how she's so good at it. So welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Um, so the speed shrinking, uh, the first book that drew me into you on that, I mean, the entire topic around that, the idea around it, and I know that you've had an abundant success with it just because of its concept. And I'd love to share with the audience as an introduction uh, of how this actually came about. It's funny, I, I have a piece in an anthology called How Does This Make You Feel that explains the whole crazy phenomenon of uh, speed shrinking. Okay, so what happened was um, I had, a, I, I'm a shrinkaholic. I love therapy. Um, it's helped me with everything in my career and my relationships and my writing because um, writing is difficult. Making a living in Manhattan as a freelance writer is really difficult. So at one point I had this amazing addiction specialist who I, I wrote a whole book about called uh, Lighting Up How I Stopped Smoking, Drinking, and Everything Else I Loved in Life Except Sex. <laughs> and um, I was seeing him. He helped me He helped me get married, and then I was, wasn't making enough money, and I was freaking out. As a, a freelance writer, I was turning 40. It was right after 9-11, and I remember I said to him that um, there are people my age who died that never got anything. Uh, there are people my age who died, and I felt like I could die tomorrow and never get anything I wanted. And so he started asking me a lot of questions about what did I want, and it turned out that what I really wanted most was that um, I had been trying for years and years to publish a book, and I had never had any luck. And so he basically asked me a lot of questions and decided that my bad habits were keeping me from getting what I wanted, because at the time I smoked cigarettes, I was addicted to cigarettes, um, two packs a day, wow. I smoked dope almost every day, and I was drinking. And he said these bad, he felt that these bad habits were getting in, in my way, and he basically said, um, I can help you quit, and if you commit to seeing me once a week and do everything I say, at the end of one year, 
Um, I think you'll be completely through with your addictions, and I bet you'll publish this book you're working on. So I had a reason to trust him, and I tried everything else. So I thought, okay, let me try. And sure enough, at the end of nine months, actually, I was off cigarettes, dope, and alcohol, and I published, I got a, a deal for my first book. And um, I was just so excited. It blew my mind. And um, and actually, I started taking notes about the therapy, and I wound up my second book. I wound up writing about how he helped lighting up, how he helped me get out of everything. And so, um, uh, and of course, I quit all my other addictions, so now I was addicted to the therapy and to getting book deals. <laughs> so um, after the book came out, I just thought, okay, now I'm on a roll, and everything was great, and I started writing. I was writing more and getting published, and then he moved away. And I kind of freaked out because he was like my sponsor and my higher power and this father figure. And I was seeing him at the time. I started seeing him twice a week. And I was just very dependent on him to help me quit. I have a very addictive personality. And he really had unlocked everything, all my success blocks and stuff. And then he moved. So I didn't know what to do. And I was afraid I would relapse. So it turned out I didn't relapse on um, cigarettes, alcohol, or drugs, but crumbs, cupcakes moved across the street, and I became addicted to cupcake icing because I would buy like a dozen of them and I would eat all the icing off at three in the morning whenever I was upset. So I thought, uh oh, this is really a problem. So I thought, I better find his replacement. I better find another addiction specialist soon, or I'm going to, you know, die of sugar intake. So I, um, it turned out I had new health insurance, and he charged $200 a session. But people who were on the shrinks who were on my new plan, um, if I got somebody on the network, then it would only be $25 copay. But I thought, well, how do you find a new shrink? So I thought, you know, I wanted to meet a bunch of them to see if I could find somebody great because I just, you know, you can't just like pick a shrink out of the phone book or out of your network and just say, oh, this one will be great because my guy was really brilliant. So I looked at the list and there were about eight of them that were in my neighborhood who seemed like they might be good with addiction. So all of a sudden I had this flash that for the price of one shrink, you know, one ham, which was $200, I could see eight shrinks in eight days. And instead of speed dating, I would go speed shrinking. <laughs> and so, and of course I live in Greenwich village where there's more shrinks than people. And, um, uh, and I, so I thought, let me try it. So I tried it and, um, the last shrink, because it's, um, there's a couple big buildings in Greenwich village where I live that have millions of shrinks. So the last shrink that I saw happened to be in the building where my literary agent was. So when I was done, I went to my agent and I explained I wasn't there to have a meeting with the agent. I was there because I was speed shrinking. I told her the, the whole story and she said, write that down. And I said, why? And she said, because it's Susan Shapiro-ian, like nobody else would think of speed shrinking. Exactly. And so I wrote it down, and um, and then I started writing about it, and uh, and everyone in my writing group thought it was hilarious, and so it actually turned into a novel. Then what happened was, I, I made it a comic novel, and then what happened was, um, I wanted to promote the novel, and it's hard to promote a first novel, and uh, I had a great PR person, and we were sitting in this restaurant in my neighborhood that has eight booths in it, and I made a joke. She said, what do you want to do for a book party? And I said, um, I have this idea, which is that there's eight booths, So, and I have all these shrink friends, brilliant shrink friends, who, um, including, by the way, Sherry Amontenstein, who did the shrink anthology, and I called them, and I said, listen, some of them had books out. I said, "Could I? would you do an event with me where I'll put you in a booth, and you could put your book or your business cards or whatever, and I'll have all my students and young friends go around, and they have three minutes to tell you their problems. And it, you know, it'll be. And I explained it. Well, let's speed drink. Let's see if it works. So I tried it, and it was amazing. It was just amazing, and and it wound up getting written about in the Daily News and the New York Times, and and everyone went nuts over the idea of it. 
And so then um, people wanted me to do another party. So I actually did another speed shrinking party, and it gained a lot of momentum, and it wound up on CBS and on um, CNN, and Jay Leno wanted me to do it on his television show, and the bad girls wanted me to do it, and it just became this whole crazy um, phenomenon. But hilariously, the more I did it, the more I realized that, like, People didn't know it was a book. They just wanted to find a quick way to get a shrink. And also some people made the mistake of thinking, oh, in this, in this um, you know, instant gratification age, this is Twitter therapy. Yes. So I had to explain, no, I'm in it, which is hilarious for me because I've you know, been in therapy like 30 years off and on. So I was not advocating three-minute therapy. I was advocating this as a way to get people, to introduce people to a therapist that they might like and make a full appointment with. So basically it, I wound up almost famous for the wrong thing yeah exactly yeah uh, but then of course the you know the book take, took off because people caught on to that but it is a brilliant concept actually when you think about it because you know when you go to a therapist it, you are exposing yourself your entire vulnerability and of course one always fears judgment you know and and uh, retribution etc and so you really need to have somebody that you really have an affinity with that you feel that you can trust so the whole exactly. concept behind exactly. it is a brilliant idea because it's all energy signature, right? You know, you find that somebody where you really vibe with and you feel, oh, I feel good with this Exactly. Person. Exactly. So and also what happens is it's extremely hard to find a good therapist because what do you do? You go into the phone book and look up therapists? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's just how do you find somebody good? And it's not one of, like with other doctors, you ask your friend, can you recommend a great, you know, can you recommend a great internist? Can you recommend a great pediatrician? It doesn't work like that because your friends don't want you seeing their shrink. It's not, yeah. it's not good to do that. So how do you find one? So what I found, which is interesting, is that um, there really is no good way to find a new shrink or any kind of therapist or counselor except for you make an appointment. Quite often you have to pay 100 or $200 copay or, you know, you have to pay for the session. And then you walk in and you just look and you're like, I don't want to be talking about oral sex to someone that looks like my grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you just take one look at a person and you're just like, this is not the person that I want to be talking to. There's something about them and it could be anything from, I mean, I had one shrink I write about in the book, Dr. Cigar, who was actually an amazing guy, but he smoked cigars. And I'm a former smoker who, you know, my whole life revolves around addiction problems. And so somebody who's, who's addicted to cigars is not my ideal therapist. So what was really cool about the events, and I did several of them with a lot of therapists that I know in New York and L.A., um, what was great was that I would get therapists intentionally of every age, every color, every religion, every ethnicity, and also of every different genre of therapy. So I had a Jungian astrologist and a sex therapist and someone who was into, um, uh, uh, what do they call it, like a... Um, uh, well, someone who was an LBGT specialist and somebody who was a marriage counselor. And uh, there, there was all these different kinds of therapies. I had a, um, I had a Freudian, I had a Jungian, I had a, um, you know, uh, hypnotherapy. So what was really cool is that, you know, and there, there would either be when I did it, I did it a few at Housing Works also, and there would be either a, um, eight people sitting in rows or sometimes I did 16 people and did it in two rows because they got so popular that people were angry that they didn't get to meet everybody so I did two so there were two lines so you could at least get through one and so what's really cool is for at least for three minutes you sit across the table from someone you introduce yourself you look at them you could take their card some of them had books 
They would explain what their specialty is. Some of them have a specific gist or a specific way that they do therapy. And so even to have three minutes to just look at someone and sit with them and get a vibe, if you like them, do we have good energy? Could there be chemistry? And so many, many people wound up going to the shrinks. Oh, and hilariously, some people, we did them in August when it started out because I think um, my book, Speed Shrinking, came out in August. So hilariously, there were some people who were cheating on their shrinks because they, you know, they had a therapist, but maybe they, you know, when they read my book, Lighting Up, and um, and also now Unhooked, if you read about it, you could see that I had amazing, amazing luck and really made major changes with a very smart shrink. So I think some people read the books and felt like, oh, I'm seeing somebody, I'm seeing a counselor, a therapist, or a psychoanalyst, but nothing has changed, or, or you know, a career counselor, or a life coach, nothing has changed in my life, so maybe I'm not, maybe I should be seeing someone else, maybe there's a different kind of therapy that would work better on me, so quite a few people who are already in therapy just wanted to sort of see, innocently kind of check out what, who else was out there. So, um, Which is their prerogative. Right, right, which is their prerogative, and actually some people wound up switching because I do, I, I believe I'm a huge therapy advocate, and I do believe that you have to start seeing changes. I mean, not immediately, but I feel like if you've been seeing someone for a year or two years, once a week, and you haven't changed things in your life, um, there's a problem. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so, yeah. And, uh, you know, not everybody, of course, can afford therapy. Not everybody gets covered on that. Well, actually, um, actually, I would disagree because there's... Um, there's there's a lot of shrinks who will use a sliding scale. So just for an example, when I started therapy, um, when I was a college student, um, there's a place called the Postgraduate Center. I was paying $20 a session. So I would argue that many people could afford that. And also when I worked at Holy Apostle Soup Kitchen with people that were homeless, there were volunteers. There were counselors and volunteers and people. Um, the reverend was available. So I actually feel that, you know, and, and at school, at high schools and colleges, there's free counselors. So I would actually argue that anybody who really needs help, um, you know, if you look at school, college, um, you know, your, your place of worship, um, there's a lot of, uh, there are free clinics around. So anyone who's ever emailed me who's needed help, I've been able to hook them up with somebody who, if they could afford $20 a session, they could see, and, and sometimes for free. Right. And, you know, it, the whole thing is we're not really meant to go through life completely knowing it all and having all the answers and, and not having someone to talk to because life can get very complex and uh, we also can get so caught up in our own heads that we don't know how to get out of something, you know, trust the heart, soul and spirit in the equation. And so having someone to talk to, sometimes just that perspective or that mirror back of that just shifting your whole perspective to look at something in a different way, uh, it can really be very, very beneficial. Also oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and by the way, I also have found that career-wise that um, I, needed, I needed all kinds of help and advice. And I have another book out that's called Only as Good as Your Word, Writing Lessons for My Favorite Literary Gurus. And I tell the story of seven people in my life, including my high school teacher and uh, one of my bosses and some of, my, some of the people that I work with, who I tell the story of how I cultivated them to be my mentors and to help me. And at the end of the book, I talk about how, how one can cultivate a mentor. And, and actually for people maybe who can't afford therapy, mentorships are for free, you yeah. know, meaning that there's, there's people in your life that you could probably, or there's people that you could find in your field or in the world who will help you, but there's, you know, there's ways to go about it. Yeah, exactly. 
And, you know, this is what it's really all about, isn't it? Is that, you know, when you have found something you love and that you're good at, it should always be a pay it forward. It's always seed those opportunities and nurture other people, you know, to reach their own goals. Because the more people that are embracing what they love, uh, you know, what, uh, what is of service to not only themselves and other people, the more beneficial it is for your That's global true, but community. I also think, right, but I also think, you know, I, I teach... Um, I've been teaching at the New School in New York since 1993, and I've mentored quite a few people, and I've taught at other places, Holy Apostle Soup Kitchen, and I will say that um, you can't be naive and think, oh, everyone's going to help me, especially in a creative field. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't naively assume people are going to want to be your mentor, or you're going to, you can't really approach older people or even therapists or doctors and have an unrealistic expectation. So one of, one of the great things about therapy actually has been, for me, has been to clarify exactly what I want and then to sort of figure out a way to be realistic about, you know, can I do this for a living? Um, how would I even get started? And I took a lot of classes. I have a MFA where I studied with great people at NYU, and I took a lot of classes, and it took a long time to develop a network. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in, the, in my mentor book is, you know, there's really smart ways to cultivate a mentor or a lot of mentors that will help you in your career, and then there's ways that you can alienate people immediately. Yeah. So I do feel when it comes to either, you know, and even with therapy, you have to figure out, you know, you have to commit, and there's this great line, which is upon the moment of commitment, the world conspires to help you. So you have to make a decision, and and I find being specific helps. So you can't just be like, oh, maybe I'll try therapy. It's like, what are you doing in your life? What's your problem that you want solved? In my case at the time, it was, I mean, I've gone through different stages, but at one point it was, I was single and alone and having a lot of screwed up relationships, and I needed help with that. And then at another point in my life, I was smoking and drinking and um, that you know that turned out to be getting in the way. So I feel like you have to make a decision. What you know, what's what's my problem, and then you have to think who can help me with this. And also, you know, what am I willing to sacrifice? You know, because at the time I think my my therapist started at 125 a session when I was older, and that was a lot of money. You know, and to commit to once a week, 125 dollars, that felt at times that felt like ridiculous. It felt like a huge leap of faith, and it was scary. Um, and then I had to commit, he, he made me commit to a year. So you have to say to yourself, you know, what am I willing to spend? What am I willing to commit? And also, you know, to decide early on, is this working for me? And should I trust this person? So there's a whole process. And so that's part of the reason I think speed drinking work, because at least you realize you walk into a room and you realize that there's eight or 16 people who potentially could be um, helpful to you, but you got to get their cards. You got to read what they're about. You got to ask questions and kind of advocate for yourself. Who do I need help from? Who's going to help me? You've also got to be a participant. If you're not willing to actually not only invest the money but the time and the work that's needed, because exactly. there's, no, there's no quick download exactly. lab, there's no quick pill, there's no quick solution. If you're in exactly. a, if you're in a problem, there's a reason that problem is there. So you have to get to the root and the cause of it. It has to be unraveled. You have to reprogram the mind, and you have to exactly. really commit to that new path. If you're unwilling yeah, to do that, don't waste anyone's time. Yes, exactly. And there's a there's an interesting theory that all you need sometimes to change is one person who understands you yeah. and gets you, and they call it a change agent. Mm -hmm. So I will say that I'll, I think that once I understood that, I became much more of an advocate for myself in terms of, um, you know, is there a therapist that could unlock this? Is it, Do I need a mentor to help me? And I really, um, you know, uh, searched for, um, you know, career-wise. I searched for 
good critics for my weekly writing group who I thought could be supportive and nurturing, and I looked for ghost editors who I could pay, sometimes hired to help me because sometimes you have to spend money to make money. So I, I would say, you know, people say to me, what's the secret of your success? And I think part of it is knowing what I don't know and reaching out to find people who can help me. You know, and that that's a whole process in itself, figuring out, you know, who you should ask advice to and who's wor- worth listening to. But I really feel like that's made a huge difference. And persistence uh, and commitment. You know, it's... Uh, Absolutely. You're going to have a lot of doors slammed in your face before that right door opens and you can't give up, you know, at the first couple of doors. Um, it just, you know, change your technique or it's just a question rather like with the shrink, finding that person that you connect with. They see Oh, and actually doing, by being in therapy while you're going through the process you can have somebody really help you. So, for example, early on in my career, I would get really excited and I'd send out 12 pieces to 12 editors and feel on top of the world, and I'd come home one day and there would be 12 rejections in a row. And so I would get stoned and drunk and go to sleep for three days. And what was great is when I started doing therapy, I would go to my therapist and I would tell her what happened, and she would be like, okay, maybe there's a better strategy than sending out 12 pieces all at once from to people you don't know, getting 12 rejections, and then freaking out and doing drugs and get, doing alcohol and then going to sleep for going to sleep for three days like maybe there's a better process mm-hmm. that would get you let's discuss you know is there a way to you know start slower is there any editor you know who maybe you could pitch a piece first to you know is there is there any class that you could take that would help you with this and so slowly I developed a system with this person we you know with the therapist helping me and um, and now you know now I have two two steady writing groups each week. I have a therapist that I could see if I feel like it. Sometimes I don't need to for six months. Sometimes I could do a phone emergency phone session. I have mentors. You know, so I have a whole system in place that really helps my career and also, you know, as you said, there's a lot of rejection. So how do you handle that intelligently? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 it's fun because being a teacher, you know, the one great thing about being a writing teacher for me has been that um, I always say I always say being a writing teacher is like being a shrink, but we get paid less. But what's really <laughs> cool is that I've had all these I've had decades of you know failures and horrible things that have happened, and I get to use all my mistakes, um, you know, not only for funny punchlines, but also to to have a, a nice overview for my students. And it's cool. In fact, I just wrote a piece for Writer's Digest that's um, upcoming that's about, I think it's called 13 Ways to Look at Career Calamities, and at where each time I mention like a huge disaster that happened in my career and how I turned it around. And so from this perspective, it's very fun to help young students, um, you know, not make the same mistakes that I made. Yeah, and uh, there is no such thing as failure. It's kind of redirect. You know, you've learned, okay, that's not the right path. That's not the right person. That's not the right approach. And all it is is a redirect to what will work. So don't harp on the things that don't work. Look at what will work next time. Einstein. Oh, exactly, box, exactly. Right? You just keep exactly. On going. In fact, there's yeah, there's an there's an example just today that someone quoted me for an article in Contently, which was about what do you do if a piece gets killed? Because quite often you'll get an assignment from an editor, and you know, and they'll give you a you know, they'll give you a contract, and you're you're supposed to write a piece, and you write the whole piece, and sometimes it's supposed to be for a lot of money, and then it gets killed, which means the editor doesn't run it; they don't like it. So what do you do? And a lot of people really, you know, it's a very depressing, horrible thing that happens, um, you know, because you could put six months or a year into a piece. So I told a story of a piece that I was assigned to write for Penthouse Magazine. I used to do a lot of profiles and book reviews for them. Hilariously, the feminist publications that I like politically um, either didn't pay me or would pay $12. And and, uh, uh, 
penthouse of all places paid several thousand dollars a piece. So I was assigned a piece um, on an editor, um, this woman, Judith Regan, who at the time had, um, she had published books by Rush Limba, Beavis and Butthead and Howard Stern, and she was really potty mouthed and sexy and funny. And so I was assigned an interview with her, and I think it was 2,500 words, which meant it was $5,000, and then it was killed. And so they actually paid me for the piece, but I wrote this great piece and it was killed and I was so depressed. But luckily, because I had a good shrink and also a couple mentors, I did some fancy footwork and I, it turned out that there was something timely going on where she was leaving her publisher at Simon & Schuster to go to HarperCollins. And so, um, and, and the funny story about it is when I asked her, how did you pick Howard Stern and Rush Limbaugh and Beavis and Butthead? Like when you read a book, how do you know it's going to be a bestseller? And so she said, she said, I read the material. She said, and my nipples have to be hard. And if my <laughs> nipples get hard, then I know that that's the book I want. So I wrote that in the piece and she was so hilarious. So I had this, I had this one of my mentors worked at the New York Times. So I emailed him and I said, um, and he said I'd never break in the New York Times Magazine. It was too tough to break in there, but he would help me once in a while. So I said, okay, I have this real conundrum because I have this piece that I love, um, but it just got killed, and I just have something new and exclusive and timely, so could you read it and maybe give me a hint where I should try it? So he read it, and I said, what do you think? And he said, it made my nipples hard. <laughs> and I said, what does that mean? And he says, we're buying it. Right. So so I took so here's a piece so it's a great failure story because here's a piece where I felt like a total failure because this piece that I loved was not going to run in penthouse and it winds up in you know one of the top magazines in the country um, the New York Times Magazine so I actually wound up getting ten thousand dollars from it but so I teach my students so just because a piece is killed doesn't mean it, it's over it means okay now what do you do. You know, and if you have a good plan of action, which sometimes is, is there something more timely or topical that makes this piece, um, you know, interesting to a newspaper? Um, you know, is there anything timely going on? And then also it's who can you reach out to, who of your mentors or your contacts or other editors do you know who might be able to take a look at it and tell you where you could, re you know, where you could sell it. But so that's basically for, you know, for someone in an artistic field, that happens every day. You know, how do you regroup? How do you get a rejection and, and turn it into something good? Yeah, and sometimes, you know, what it started off and, uh, was meant to be, wasn't meant to be, is actually just taking you down a different path. We've got to learn to redirect, haven't we? You know, sidestep, jump forward, even take a step back. Um, so we've got to be adaptable. Um, because if we're not, right, and we if get you, a break. right, and if exactly, but but again, I didn't do that on my own because what yeah. happened was first I had. By the way, that whole story is all about like mentors and shrinks and people who helped me because the first first thing that helped was I, I found um, and cultivated a relationship with a great penthouse editor who was who would give me a shot, you know, with a great story because it was an assignment. Then when that didn't work, I definitely went to my therapist, totally depressed. Oh my God, what do I do? I spent months on this story, and then I had and you know and and my shrink helped me figure out. Okay, let's see. Who who could you ask? Is there somebody you could go to, an expert who might be able to help you with this? And then we figured out that my mentor um, at the at the New York Times could help me, and that wound up unlocking it. So I really, you know, having people to go to who are mentors or teachers or, you know, people that could steer you, they were all older, they were all smarter, they'd all been doing it longer. So, yeah, so that's that's a part of my process. And it's also, interestingly, what I want to do with my students. You know, because that's, I, I was so lucky. I had so many great teachers and mentors who held my hand uh, and shrinks that I really like, you know, that's who I want to be. And, of course, one doesn't uh, always um, end up where you thought you were going to be. Um, I recently interviewed somebody that writes for the Washington Post, but she started off being a fact checker for Playboy. 
uh, and then kind of fell into the writing. And so sometimes, you know, we think we're going to do something else in life and then something steers us in the direction. And, you know, somebody always said there's a book and a story in everybody that needs to come out, whether it's a blog or whether it's an article or whether it's a book, that we need to express ourselves. Some do it through songs, through paint, through something. But if you've got those words in you, they have to come out in some form, don't they? Yes, I absolutely agree, but I also think that it's a little unrealistic. I meet a lot of people who are like, okay, I sat in my basement and I just wrote 300, you know, 300 pages and it's this brilliant first book that's, you know, a thriller, um, science fiction in rhyming, am- you know, uh, rhyming iambic pentameter. And by the way, give me, your, give me the name of your agent. They're going to yeah. love this. You know, so I think that there's, you know, it's great to, to get a spark and to try something artistically, but I also think if you want to get paid or if you want it to be in mainstream, that there's, there's you know, a lot of ways that you could reach out to a teacher or, um, you know, a coach or hire somebody or go to classes or go to seminars. I actually do a lot of free events, like I'm doing a great event um, in New York on June 7th at the NYU Bookstore where I have, I just have fantastic editors and agents and authors tell the truth about how one breaks in. So mm-hmm. sometimes going to a free event at a bookstore, um, I had a student who went to a free, free one of my free events at a bookstore and, and listened, just took notes, listened, and wound up getting a $500,000 book deal. Right. You know, so, so, but I, so I will say it's great to have that spark, but if you want to be taken seriously and you want to get paid, there, is, there are ways that you could make it easier for yourself. Um, you know, in every field and even, even, you know, every genre of writing is different because it's a huge difference between how you would go about publishing poetry or short stories or a novel or journalism or a memoir or a screenplay or, you know, teleplay. Um, so, so I do think that if you, you know, if you're serious and you do some research and you pay attention, you know, a great way to start is, is maybe like, um, you know, local schools because, you know, there's certainly school of, you know, um, adult education classes almost everywhere, or if you're an undergrad or graduate, that's a great place to start. And really, almost every bookstore um, that I know of um, has great events and reading. So, you know, um, my shrink had a great line for me, which is he said, hang out with people you want to be. Yeah. So, yeah, so so it's, it, it's not that hard to, um, you know, it's not that hard to find, you know, um, all kinds of readings and events going on almost, you know, I mean, I'm from Michigan, there's great Barnes and Nobles and there's great, you know, at the University of Michigan, there was great events going on. There's great independent bookstores. There's a lot of places where one could find events. And by the way, even on my, on my website, which is susanshapiro.net, you can go watch for free 12 panels that I did with fantastic editors and agents talking about this very thing. Yeah. How do, you know, how do you break in? The other thing is is that it isn't writing a book, sending it off to someone and sitting back. If you don't play the social media game, if you don't play the networking game, if you don't put yourself out there, uh, people have got to be interested in you to be interested in what you've written. And if you're not willing to get out there and kind of quite essentially play the game, no one's going to know about your book. Well, I do think that cream rises, and I do think that there are people who sit alone in Montana or sit alone in... Um, you know, in Alaska and can write, spend a lot of time writing a beautiful book. I do think if you create something beautiful that, um, you know, that, that 
you might have a chance at selling it. And I know there are people who don't like to get on social media or do a big dance or be in New York City and or L.A. So it's not that you can't. It's just that what, it's what you do with it after you finish. Yeah. You know, just for an example, it's extremely rare that I've ever seen anybody write a book, get no feedback, send it to an editor or agent and have it happen. So, okay, so you spend a lot of time writing your book. Even if you find one person who's an editor or an agent or, um, you know, works at a newspaper or magazine who could, or works at a book publisher who could help you with a revision, could give you some, um, you know, could give you a little bit of feedback, um, you know, because most, most projects that I've done need many, many rewrites before they're ready. Um, but so I don't necessarily, I mean, I do have people who don't like social media and I don't necessarily think you have to be in social media in order to be a successful writer. It depends what kind of writing you want to do. You know, just for an example, Jonathan Fran Jonathan Franzen doesn't like social media. He goes off and writes. He spends ten years writing a book on his own and has a few of his own critics who um you know, who help him and eventually he's tried to do media in general with not that great results, but it's really about the you know, it's about the work. Yeah, exactly. And there, and there are some people, I remember one particular author I won't mention, his books were absolutely wonderful. They touched your soul and your heart. But he himself was an asshole. <laughs> so nobody would want to put him out there uh, because he was totally contradictory to what he wrote. So you, oh, do, that's hilarious. you do have to have the personality if you're going to be out there representing your work, right? So maybe for some people it's best they stay in the background. Um what do you think? And again, every field is different because just for an example, poetry, for example, is more really just about the words on the page, mm -hmm. you know, and you don't necessarily have to, I mean, nobody, there, there's very few poets you're going to see on, you know, Today Show or Good Morning right. America plugging their book. So that's really, it's more academic and it's really about the words itself. On the other hand, if you're writing like a slick, funny uh, memoir, humor, hu humorous type book, or chiclet, or, you know, there's all these different divisions that really, you know, do benefit from having an author's presence. What do you think of self-publishing uh, as opposed to going through, because there's so many different types of publishers today. But yeah, do I don't do advocate that? it. I don't advocate it as, as a writing teacher and somebody who has 10 books out, all with um, mainstream publishers, six of the big six big publishers and also I've had 90 students who have gotten uh, mainstream book deals within the last 10 years so I don't advocate self-publishing in general I think it depends what your goal is I mean mm -hmm. just for an example I have a cousin who's a fantastic photographer and he just wanted to put together just a beautiful book of his photography to give to relatives and close friends and if that's your goal then go ahead that's great and um, and sometimes you know just for an example an older person um, wants to I know someone who's a Holocaust survivor and wanted to tell the story of what happened to them to get to, to give to their relatives so that the family has the history written down so so those are decent motivations to to get you know to self-publish but if I meet somebody young who just says um, you know okay I'm going to jump into self-publishing that's basically acting as if you've had 5,000 rejections and nobody else wants to work with you um, before you've even tried yeah. because because I've actually found that many publishers are desperate for new great young you know, weird, unusual material. And so sometimes if you're willing to 
understand the system and and as you said play the game a little bit um it's you know it's not unusual for somebody new to get a publisher in fact book publishers love debuts they they would much rather have a debut of someone who's never done anything before than for example take my 11th book mm-hmm. you know they they would much rather have a debut especially from someone that that isn't you know that hasn't made them a million dollars so so i actually don't advocate starting out with self publishing and i don't advocate people going on huffington post to publish their their pieces because you don't get paid for it because I, fi- I have found that there's a huge system that really works and tons of my students as young as 14 or 15 years old have been able to publish in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Marie Claire and great places. Um, I do think you have to learn how to do it and I do think there's ways that one could learn how to do it. I mean, sometimes, like I said, even one seminar or one class or contacting the right person, um, you know, is a good way in. Um, so so if you've been rejected by everyone and you you massively believe in your project, then I could see considering self-publishing, and some people do make money off it, I know, from Amazon, but I, I don't I don't recommend people jump into it right away. Um, and interestingly, two or three of the people that have been the most successful, like the woman who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey and another woman who wrote Troll Books um, uh, YA, they both wound up, after they had huge success, going with mainstream publishers because they realized that mainstream publishers have so much much, you know, they have so much more to offer. And of course, you know, a lot of people say, well, the book is dead. You know, everything is now, you know, downloadable, etc. But I think if you're a reader, you still love to have that tactile of that book in your hand. Oh, yeah. And there, actually, the numbers lately are that the ebook ebook numbers are going down. Mm-hmm. And I think they say right now it's only 18% of the market. And the predictions were way, way bigger than that. So I think what's great about ebooks is that it just offers another way for um, readers to find new writers and for new writers to find new readership, especially young readership, but I don't think books are dead at all. I think that, um, you know, they're still thriving. And, yeah. you know, the, if you look, the, the, you know, I was a book reviewer in the, and in the National Book Critics Circle, and God, I was getting thousands of hardcover big books in the mail every day. I think they say 200,000 books are published in the United States every year, not, not including textbooks. So it's still quite a huge market. What's really hilarious is there's a lot of presidents like... Um, the Bushes, all the Bushes, all the Obamas, and all the Clintons, who they make much more money from their book royalties than they do in office. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yep. Well, I mean, you know, when somebody is public, right, and they put out a memoir, you know, everybody wants to jump on it because they want to know the juicy story, you know, what is really behind the curtain, so to speak. So, you know, I think that's why it becomes so popular. But, you know, if they'd written a book before they became popular, it wouldn't have been as interesting and probably wouldn't have been read. Although, interestingly, Obama's book, Obama's memoirs were pretty interesting long before he became president. Those were pretty interesting. So, um, I, you know, I really, I firmly believe if you write a good book, if you have yeah. something interesting to say, if it's well written, if it's, you know, I, I think, you know, I think that um, I can't tell you how many times I've seen, you know, someone who's never written anything before. Just for an example, my, my physical therapist um, a couple of years ago when I hurt my back, he was from Bosnia. And as the physical therapy is so boring, and as we were doing it, I would ask him a million questions. And I told him that um, after he told me the story of how he survived uh, ethnic cleansing against Muslims um, and, and during the Bosnian War in 1993, I said, you should write about it. His first piece was in the New York Times. And we wrote a book together that was published by Penguin. And so, and he'd never written anything before. And that's, you know, this, so this is the question. That, so, you know, he, there you brought a book out in him because you saw it in him that he probably didn't see in himself. See, how does somebody go about kind of doing that first book? Is it something that's, you know, a story that's in them that has to come out, a memoir, or is it 
just you know a fantasy that they want to get down on paper. I mean, I think there's all different. I think there's all different ways, as you said. I think most people feel like they have a book in them, and so I mean, I'm a teacher, and I've done um, all kinds of classes and seminars in New York, where I live, and I've done them in L.A. and Michigan and Philly. So my feeling is, um, you know, a really great place to start is look at your local college. Almost every, I mean, certainly every state in the United States has uh, schools and colleges where, uh, especially School of Continuing Ed, or just, you know, you could just walk in and take a class. So I would say look and see what's available. You know, think of what you want to write, and then look and see is there, you know, is there a class or a seminar available? And and again, you know, are you trying to write a novel? Do you want to write a poem? Do you want to write an op-ed piece? Do you want to write an essay? So I think you have to maybe, maybe, you know, go to a bookstore and see what writing you love, and then so, you know, you have to ask yourself what, you know, what form does the story that you want to tell take? What, what, what do you want it to take? So I think you do have to narrow down a little bit or just take a whole bunch of seminars or classes or read a whole lot to figure it out. You know, and again, that's what, I mean, I, I learned in high school. I, I started, and I switched around a lot. I love poetry, but I found early on, and I have a master's in poetry, but I found that I couldn't make a living doing it. And so I tried a lot of different things. First, I tried poetry. And then I tried, I, I actually failed as a poet. I had too many words, not enough music, as one of my teachers said. Mm-hmm. And then I tried um, book reviewing, which I liked, but it took a million hours and it, and it didn't pay very well. And then I tried comedy writing. I tried quite a few things. And then I tried um, novels and, and they didn't sell very well. And then I tried nonfiction. The joke is that most people like my nonfiction better than my fiction. And my family says my nonfiction is fiction. <laughs> they hate my memoirs. One of my rules in class, I always say, is the first piece you write that your family hates means that you found your voice. Yeah, that's a good point. But it, t- it takes a while to figure it out. But I would yeah. say there's nothing, nothing smarter you could do than take a class, especially if it's, um, if it's with a writer or an editor or an agent or someone who has experience in the business. In my, I teach a 15-week class in New York, um, which is a, an overview of feature journalism, where I get 14 different assignments that editors are most likely to buy. And I call my class the instant gratification takes too long method. And the goal of the class is to write and publish a great piece by the end of the class to pay for the class. And tons of my students do. And tons Mm -hmm. of my students who've never published anything, the age range has been 14 to 90. Um, And there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people who do this online. Um, You could actually um, hire a ghost editor if you just want to work one-on-one with some, you know, with somebody great. I have a friend that's a former New York Times editor who just does ghost editing by computer. You know, so there's there's a, there's a lot of ways that one could find mentors and find a class or a seminar that would lead you in the right direction. I've interviewed quite a number of authors, and there's a couple of that have really sat with me. And you know, one of them is that she's a, a forensic artist. And uh, there was a novel that wanted to come out of her, so she made her main character this forensic artist, uh, and it started becoming a murder mystery. And then taking it around a fact, around a particular religion or you know uh, a historical thing, and then weaving those stories together. And now she's on a third book and doing it exceptionally well. Completely got the writing bug. She took her time to put all the story together, but she also wrote from what she knew you know, from her own expertise, from what she has Yes, I'm a huge advocate of that. I'm a huge advocate of that, and the first assignment that I give my students is um, write three double-spaced type pages about your most humiliating secret. And I actually remember when I was in physical therapy and I told my... um, um, I was always grading papers because I got so bored during the exercises, and Ken and my physical therapist grabbed my papers away, and he's like, what is this, like... uh, 
what I did on my summer vacation. And I said, no, the first assignment I give my students is write three pages about your most humiliating secret. And he laughed and he said, you Americans, why the hell would anyone do that? And I said, because it's healing and because my students want to get in the New York Times and do books. And he didn't quite believe me. And then I sent him some pieces that my students did. And the next time I came in, while I'm laying flat on my back and he's putting electrodes and trying to do all this stuff, he, he hands me his three um, three double space type pages telling his story and it was fantastic and it wound up in the New York Times so yeah. I, you know I, I give prompts yes. and a lot of good writing teachers so if somebody has never written anything before that's a great place to start because there's so many newspapers and magazines who are um, and webzines these days who are and, and even Twitter you know but they're so they're looking for provocative first person stories and so if you have anything interesting in your life um, you know, so that's one of the assignments. That's one of the prompts that people, many, many people have published these pieces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also it's like if you are writing a memoir, if you're writing a life story, uh, yes, you know, uh, stuff's happened to you. Shit happens to everybody. But don't get too heavy with it, right? Um, no, that's, no, I actually, no, I actually say to people if there's a choice between, like, writing a silly, fun story about how your tooth fell out on your first date or writing about how you know, you had suicidal feelings or you have OCD or you've had a medical issue or someone in your life died. I actually push people towards the darker side, um, depending on what you want. You know, like there's certainly, there's a few publications that publish light slices of life, but in general, um, I would say more art is made around failure and tragedy and darkness. And so I actually um, push people, you know, push my students to go there. So, and, you know, and if anybody wants to, I, I let people email me and you can look on my website and you can read my pieces. I might be humorous, like I might take on the subject of addiction or, um, you know, getting your heart broken, um, I, you know, or failure. I take on it. I, sometimes I try to take it on in a humorous way, but I like to go there. And I think that a lot of good writing revolves around drama, conflict, tension. And so I don't, I don't advocate people necessarily writing sweet slices of life. I don't right. think that that makes for great writing. But, and you know, I always know that, again, my approach with doing the shows, you know, I, I tell, well, hear the stories of people, of, of some of the horrific things they've gone through, but everybody always wants to be left with, quote, the happy ending. You know, how did you Well, what happens a lot of times is that, like, okay, so if you're writing a good first-person essay, which is my specialty that I teach, so there, there has to be an emotional arc. You know, and it's funny, like, when I was working with Kennan on the, the, the Bosnian War, um, you know, so he still hates the people who perpetrated the ethnic cleansing campaign against his family and killed thousands of, um, you know, of his people. But I basically said to him when he was writing the essay and when he was writing the book, the memoir, you can't start with hate and end with hate. Right. You know, and you can't. And also, I always say that for a good personal essay, you have to question, challenge, and trash yourself more than anyone else. So you can't just write a piece about my ex sucks. My mm -hmm. ex is so stupid. Look what they did. Or I hated my mother. Those pieces aren't, they don't get published and they're not that interesting. The pieces that get published are where you start off with the drama conflict tension and you tell us how you work through it or what changed or how did you heal. And those tend to be yes. the pieces that are the most interesting. And actually, um, I write about that in my books. Like my first book was Five Men Who Broke My Heart, where I went back to re-meet my top five heartbreaks of all time to find out what I did wrong in each relationship. And by writing the book and by coming to terms with some of the mistakes that I personally made, I, I, it, was, it was very liberating. And I actually found my true love. So that was, you know, so, so it starts out drama, conflict, tension, breakups, bad failure, but it goes to, uh, um, you know, you, you find wisdom. And in the book Lighting Up, I start out a raging addict. 
you know, addicted and frustrated and I don't trust the shrink who's, you know, telling me to come see him once a week. And I end up after, you know, after two years, I've, I basically quit all my addictions and um, got my dream. You know, my dream came true. So, so I feel like, you know, there's a way to do good writing where you talk about what happened to you. And some of my students have written way heavier, deeper, darker pieces, but it's not just, here's my horrible story. It's, you know, and it's, it's usually, there's usually wisdom at the end, how I worked through it, how I healed, the different perspective, you know, this is, you know, so I think that there's a, there's an artful way to tell a dark, difficult story. Well, the thing is, is that uh, it, it genuinely kind of relates to people, whether it's, you know, the same thing or just, you know, something that that person went through, uh, people can relate to. And then they want to know how, how did you overcome it? You know, how did you get exactly. to where you are now? Right, exactly. And so there should always be that how to it. There always should be, you know, that was where I was. I'm in the light now. This is how I got there. Because otherwise it just leaves people feeling heavy and you want people to kind of have a little optimism in their lives, right? But especially in Right, and way. actually sometimes, you know, sometimes there's a great surprise that you don't expect coming. Like just for an example, when we were writing the Bosnia list, which was with my physical therapist, it started out where he wrote a list when he was going back to his home country after 20 years. He wrote a list of 12 people that he wanted to confront who had hurt his family and who he felt really upset by. And when he was done writing the whole process, writing the whole book and going through it again, um, I asked him, at a, at a certain point, his mother said that her favorite movie was Schindler's List, and that she, she said to him, um, you have to remember the bad people, but you also have to remember the good people who helped us. And he made a joke. He said, I could count the people who helped us on one finger. And I'm like, you know what? Write a list right now of every single person who helped you get out of the country. And it turned out there were 12. Right. And so, and, and so it was this, it was like this moment of clarity. And there's a great line from Joan Didion, which, which is, I write entirely to find out what I think. So mm. sometimes if you're in a problem, if you're in the middle of something and you're struggling, um, which, which happens to me quite often, um, with, with most of my essays and my books, if you're in a problem, you start writing about it. And sometimes in the process of writing about it, you learn things about yourself. You learn things about how you feel. You learn things about how to heal. And, and so that's exciting. And, you know, that's what's so exciting about writing. And that's definitely therapeutic for me. And sometimes uh, I have no idea what I'm going to write. The fingers are on the keyboard and it just pours out. And it's, you know, it's something that's within inside of me that I haven't allowed to articulate. And the words then speak back to me. And it kind of helps me understand where I am at that moment. Or, yes. You know, and, what is yes and my favorite thing that I say to my students is that writing is a way to turn your worst experiences into the most beautiful. Yeah. Because you, you could make art out of them, but it's a process. You know, you can't just snap your fingers and go to the computer and say, you know, here's an hour and, and now it's brilliant. I want to get published. I do think it's a process. And again, as we mentioned, I think that um, having help, whether it's a writing teacher or a mentor or a writing group or a shrink, having, having some direction or having somebody to talk to and get feedback from, I think, is, is really the, a, a great way to get rolling. An excellent editor, yeah, and one that you know doesn't just slice and dice, uh, you know, rudely and kind of offend you, but one that really understands the direction you need to go in and what needs to be cut and rearranged that you will listen to. So, really, have a good relationship with a good editor, huh? Yes. 
And yes, and I can recommend, you know, if people want to email me, I can a- absolutely recommend. There's a couple fantastic, like I said, two actually that were former from the New York Times that retired, but that you can work with one-on-one. And that's that's like a dream come true yeah. that you can actually be, you know, going back and forth with a brilliant editor who's done this a million times who could give you feedback. But also you have to decide what do you want? You know, is my goal to publish this in a newspaper or magazine? Is my goal for this to lead to a book? Am I just doing this for myself? Is this is this an issue I have to solve? First, like just for an example, I did not write very well about my addictions until I overcame some of them. Mm-hmm. You know, cause, and I get a lot of students who write about they're drinking or they're doing drugs or they're overeating or, um, you know, they'll write about it, smoking. But it, but it's just it's not necessarily all that interesting to just read about somebody who's in the middle of an addiction. Yes. You know, because what does that mean? Okay, so you're getting drunk or you're getting stoned. And and what and then yeah, what exactly. you know like exactly. you need insight you need insight interest? and, and yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah and actually it, it happens that. a what lot of times where yeah. right and I've written a lot of relationship books so there's a lot of people who come to me and they just want to write about their horrible dating experiences and it's not necessarily all that interesting to just read about bad dates and sometimes they trash the people they're dating and it's not you know everybody's doing online dating or whatever so it's not necessarily all that interesting to write about that it's much more interesting with someone who has solved. you know, has solved the conundrum. So whether it's someone who's married or someone who's decided, like just for an example, there's a couple books about um, uh, like a spinster, someone who decided I'm just not even going to bother or, you know, you come to a conclusion or you come to some wisdom or you change, then it's more interesting to read about. You know, everybody wants a happy ending. You know, it's it's that human condition. We seem to be, you know, drawn to the pain, drawn to the drama, uh, you know, drawn to the problem. But in the end, we all want to know what the solution is. We all want that happy ending because otherwise, why would we get up in the morning? Right, right. No, I agree with that. But I also think that there's ways to, that, you know, there's ways to be complex and surprising and interesting without necessarily tying everything in, into a yellow ribbon. Right. You know, just for an example, so like my book, Lighting Up, How I Stopped Smoking, Drinking, and Everything Else I Loved in Life Except Sex. So I, in the book, I actually talk about and show going through quitting cigarettes and dope and alcohol and drugs. I show it, but at the end, it's not like I'm a perfect person. At the end, I've just become addicted to other things. Luckily, right. I've learned to become addicted to therapy and book deals, whatever. But, you know, so I was trying to be as honest as possible, but it's not, it's not like a happy ending where, okay, now I'll never be addicted. Right, and that's that's an illusion anyway. Um, uh, but the, you know, the happy ending I'm looking at is that where there's been an improvement in your life because of the process yeah. that you were willing to put yourself through. And I think this is what something that humanity needs to understand: that life is a journey. It is a process. You do have to participate in it. You do have to go through the ups and downs, the roller coasters. And what you get out of it is is a, a great deal of what you're willing to put into it. Um, and that n- there, nobody goes through life without some form of traumatic events or some issue. It's how you choose to look at it. And books, I think, are wonderful ways of helping people through those journeys. I agree. And I also think that there's ways that you could stack the deck in your favor. And Mm. as we talked about, I think having a therapist or a mentor, um, you know, somebody on your side, it's almost like my secret weapon of life, you know, because um, just to have have somebody brilliant and older, um, maybe who's done what you're trying to do, um, you know, analyzing it with you or holding your hand um, and helping you figure it out, that's really been the trick to all my success. And, and as I said, I kind of like to, I try to do that 
myself now that I'm older, I kind of like to have younger people because I remember how many people, you know, when I, I moved to New York, well, I started writing when I was in junior high and high school in Michigan, and then I moved to New York when I was 20, and I didn't know anyone. I didn't know anything, really. And so I had so many people who were willing to hold my hand and um, give me good advice and to steer me in good directions. So I'm trying to um, pay that forward and do that myself in my classes and seminars. And that's exactly how it should be. Um, So let's talk briefly about Unhooked, and then I want to talk about your new book, What's Never Said. Great. So Unhooked, it's a funny story. So so after I was with the addiction specialist and he helped me write six or seven books and then he moved away and I was freaking out that he moved away and it turned out that he had always wanted to write an addiction book himself because he had spent 30 years with addiction therapy and he had a really interesting story. And so I wanted to find a way to keep in touch with him and stay close without, you know, while he was long distance without having to pay ridiculous amounts of money to do phone sessions, which didn't, you know, aren't necessarily that great. So we decided, I said, let's try to write your book together. And so we wrote this book, Unhooked How to Quit Anything, together. And it was, um, each chapter was about a case study where he helped somebody off of an addiction. So there's everything from alcohol and heroin and painkillers and um, really interesting, some other interesting addictions. So we wrote that together and it became a New York Times bestseller, which was so cool. And I, I actually thought it was, um, you know, it was like, I thought it would do good in the world. We both thought it would do good in the world because, oh, and, and the interesting part of that was he, in doing, you know, when, when I asked him his motivation to figure out where to start the book, it turns out his mother was a raging alcoholic, and he did not want to write about that at first, and I talked him into it, and it wound up being a very splashy New York Times piece that sort of launched the whole book, mm-hmm. and he was so worried because here he is a therapist, and he didn't necessarily know if he wanted to be vulnerable and tell people his own personal story, and it turned out that all of his patients were so fascinated and appreciated that he put himself out there like that, and he got lots of more patients calling him and his institute because yes. it's a, such a common problem. What do you do if, if, if your mother or father or somebody that you love in your life is a raging yeah, addict who that, mistreats you? That relator, uh, relatability there. You know, you want to know somebody's had their own journey so they understand what you're going through. Exactly. So that was Unhooked, and it's so far it's come out in um, China and Mexico. It was put up by Skyhorse Press. It's in China and Mexico and um, Korea. So that, that's been a thrill. That's going to be interesting in those countries to see the effect. Yeah, I actually had one student who speaks Spanish who I made him read it in Spanish, and he said it was good in the Spanish version because I didn't know. So that was, um, yeah, so that's, uh, so it's funny. So sometimes people read, if they're quitting smoking or drinking or drugs, they'll read Lighting Up, which is my personal story, and then they'll read Unhooked, which is from the doctor's viewpoint. So it's sort of, you know, and, and some men prefer the, the, you know, the, the male, from the male shrink's point of view. Right. You know, so that's yeah. So that th- those are in, those those have been really interesting to write about. So, what's never said? Your new book. What's uh, what is never said? Okay, so what happened was my first book was Five Men Who Broke My Heart, which was um, a memoir about um, you know just these these horrible, ridiculous, bad breakups I had in my past. And so there was one story that I was never able to tell, especially in nonfiction. And I finally decided to write it. Um, in fiction, and so what's never said is a novel about a relationship between a young student and her professor that's haunted them both for thirty years. Mm. So and so that basic, well, factional, you call it that. Um, yes, yes, it's right. uh, it's it's based on a true story. Right. 
Yeah, and so uh, yeah, so that just came out. And interestingly, this was in real life, which I've written about the story a little bit in real life. And so in real life, this was the person I think who actually turned me on to therapy because he was like a total shrinkaholic himself. And I thought it was ridiculous. And I thought I'll just get he he's, he had been in therapy so long. I thought I'll just get therapy by osmosis. But then we had such a bad breakup that it kind of threw me into therapy. So I actually always owe him that because he did. He was a huge therapy advocate, and that turned out to be a really great thing in my life. You know, there's there's always something you get out of something, right? I mean, however disastrous you think it is, and, oh, it's taken so many years of my life, or it did this and it did that to me, there is always something we get out of it if we choose to actually look. What did I benefit from that? There's always something you can take out of the ashes. Oh, well, what was so exciting for me was, so so from age 13 to 35, for different reasons, I just had horrific breakups. Like, I didn't have minor breakups. I just had bizarrely ridiculous, horrible, humiliating breakups. Like my boyfriend didn't sleep with, my college boyfriend didn't sleep with one of my roommates. He slept with two of my roommates. Like they were just ridiculous. And, and, I, and I just felt like an idiot for so long. I just couldn't figure out how to do it. And I have these parents that have been like beautifully, happily married for 50 years and have four kids. And here I was like screwing everything up. And so it was so amazing when I was 40 years old to publish my first hardcover, Five Men Who Broke My Heart. It was so exciting and redemptive, you yes. know, because here's... I took these many, many years of pain and anguish and where I felt horrible. And, and for some reason, maybe because by 40 I was married and I had been in therapy, it's funny. You know, so it's, it was so cool to write a funny, engaging, kooky book where I go back and re-meet my top five heartbreaks of all time to try to understand them. Yeah, but so that's where I came up with the line where I say to my students, um, you know, writing's a way to take your worst experiences, to turn your worst experiences into the most beautiful. And by the way, the best example of that is picture... So Kanan Trebinchevic, Bosnian war survivor who was thrown out of his own country when he was 12 and had never really reconciled it. And by writing about it in essays and the book, The Bosnia List, he said he had this beautiful thing. He said that his cousin who was exiled and living in Italy, his cousin read the book and said to him, this is the first time in 20 years I feel like a winner. Mm. You know, like like it to- it turned everything around, and now what's so interesting is he was a twelve year old watching everything being taken away from him and his family, and now he travels, and he's this he's the keynote speaker, and he's speaking for his people and his family, and his people are proud of him because he told the truth and told the story of what happened. So writing, yeah, it's such a way to empower yourself. Yes. Yes, and and, you and know, take it, back the story. Take I, back the story and write it the way you need to write it, and say your truth. I had another student, Aspen Matus, who wrote a beautiful book, Girl in the Woods, about how she was raped and dropped out of school, raped the second day of of uh, the second day of college in Colorado, and she just wrote this beautiful book out of it, and she became a spokesperson for Rain, uh, a rape and incest group, and so so through you know making art out of her pain, winds up helping so many other people. Exactly. That's something I totally advocate because we don't go through all of this stuff for no reason. We go through it so that we actually find our meaningful purpose and our direction in life. And uh, very often we have to go through it to find that purpose of what we're here Right, for. and being able to help other people yeah. is really, yeah, it gives you a purpose. It's yeah. so exciting. Yeah, it is, definitely. So most certainly more books to come from you and um, more teaching, which um, I think is wonderful. So if Thank people you. Uh, want to be taught by you and you uh, want to reach out to you for help, um, how do they find you? How do they find your books? Yeah, well, my website is Susan Shapiro, um, Susan Shapiro Net. Susan Shapiro dot net is my website. And um, all my books are on Barnes & Noble and Amazon, um, just Susan Shapiro. And I'm on Twitter at, uh, again, Susan Shapiro Net, just to make it easier. 
And um, on my website, I, I do put my email, and I have um, all my clips and articles and stuff like that. I'm very accessible. In fact, now that I have quit all my other addictions, I'm addicted to email. So people are astounded. <laughs> Strangers in all different countries are, are are shocked and astounded that they email me, and usually seven minutes later they get a response. Yes, exactly, which is wonderful because, you know, I, when I saw, you know, your article on the speed shrinking and I reached out to you, sometimes it can take a long time for someone to get back, certainly somebody so successful. And it was wonderful to hear back from you and agreeing to do the show. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for asking. So, you know, it's uh, the advocating of, um, you know, of shrinks, the advocating of help, the advocating of uh, going through the process, uh, you know, of the dedication and the commitment to it and finding your story. Um, it's all there. there. It isn't like, you know, write a book or tell your story and the whole world is going to want to know it immediately. You've got to be willing to go through the process. You've got to know the people. Um, you've got to do it properly. Otherwise, um, nobody's going to be interested. So. Well, there's a great line I like that works with um, writing and love, which is you can do anything as long as it works. <laughs> but I will say that there is a system that you could plug into that will make it a million times easier. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, why go the hard road? You know, the, uh, people like yourself have gone before you, and this is, this is what it's all about. Go to somebody that's taken the journey because now you're going to learn the tips and the tools and the process to make your journey better. So, you oh, know, right. In fact, I have, in fact, I always tease um, Aspen, Matus, and Kenneth Trebinchevich, and I have several other young students who publish books, and I always say to them, you're so lucky that I had this messy, disgusting, horrible career with 75 failures, and I didn't figure out how to do a book until I was like 42, and you're so lucky because Aspen, I think, was 25 when she sold her book, and Kenneth was 30, and I, it's so cool to be able to help people younger by telling them, don't do this. Like, yes. don't, don't make the same <laughs> stupid, ugly, ridiculous mistakes that I did. Do it this way, and so it's, 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 it's actually thrilling because then all the mistakes and failure meant something. Exactly. That's the whole part of it. That's, that's, you're now that mentor, you know, guiding people along the path to, uh, to do it right. And in turn, later on, they will be the same. And that's the beautiful domino effect of life. You know, it's not just the inspiration that you get from the books, from the stories, um, but it's also, you know, through the dedication and the commitment that people put behind it in telling that story. And if we're willing to read it and if we're willing to listen, uh, we will get a great deal out of it that will help in our own uh, joys and journeys of life. Yes, and I also feel like I'm paying back all the good karma because I was so lucky to have, like I said, some brilliant shrinks and teachers and mentors who were willing to help me. So I feel like it's, uh, I, because of them, I feel like I want to I wanna be to my students the way they were to me. Right, exactly. A wonderful approach to life. So thank you. Thank you so thank much you. for being on the air with us here today and sharing all your, your ins and outs and your expertise. And uh, so folks, you know, go uh, to her site. Uh, net. She has all of her books there. Um, you know, just pick a book that speaks to you and start the journey of, of reading. And if you feel that there's a writer in you, reach out to her and she'll guide you on your path. Uh, because that's what she's here for now. Uh, it's not just her success, it's your success too. So thank you, Susan, very much for being with us. And uh, Thanks for having me. And to everybody else. Uh, let your words come out. Find that path. and uh, But just remember, there's a dedication and a process to it. Until next time. <laughs>